You're listening to episode 195 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as always by the great Dan Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. Dan, how you doing? I'm doing okay. How are you doing, Leslie? Oh, not too bad. You know, before we get uh, get going this week, I just wanted to extend I speak for both of us, I think, when I say thank you to the Los Angeles Press Club for recognizing Dan and I with your award for best podcast hosts and the praise that we, quote, anchor an informative show in a comfortable yet lively manner. So thank you, L.A. Press Club, TV's top five, no longer a bridesmaid. Comfortable yet lively is is a fine description of what we do, I think. Uh, Occasionally, we like to add a little discomfort, you know, but... But talking about baseball isn't isn't everything. But that's I'm not I'm not discomforted by that. You're not, but our <laughs> listeners are. It's got nothing to do with you. I'm sure you're comfortable with all of the great t- stuff we discuss. But uh, but yes. Anyway, yes. Thank you to the LA Press Club. We are we are chuffed and honored and and whatnot. Yes, um, but otherwise, Dan, how you feeling? I know you've been. Still testing positive, I think, right? Yep, still testing positive. Uh, very, very faint line, but I, I'm, I'm fine. I, <laughs> I, I'm, I may just be lethargic for the rest of my life, and that's entirely okay. It would be, it would be such a small little change <laughs> if that was the case. But no, I am, I am mostly fully fine and fully functional, and other than an occasional cough and lethargy at the end of the day, I am okay and plugging away. So, huzzah! Well, I would recommend you take a vacation, but I think you came back from vacation with this. Yeah, so. that that the that vacation thing I took was entirely uh, unhelpful in terms of actually recovering. So maybe I need another, but we are getting towards the end of the year. So who knows what will happen in the last couple of months of December? We are still a couple hammering. of months of December. Wow, December is really long. It's endless. It's I don't know. I mean, again, 2022, 2021, and 2020 have all been multiple years long apiece, so there's no reason why December shouldn't be multiple months long. Anyway, we are still trying to figure out our scheduling for the rest of the month, which will include, of course, an end-of-the-year episode and a preview of 2023, and probably we will be taking the 23rd off, but we're sure to warn you about that again. So anyway, uh, just just straighten that out, all the end-of-the-year stuff, and we. Well, I guess we could enjoy saying the things that we enjoy saying. Freebie! And you got one that you can't really say anymore after this week's episode, but uh, that sounds like a transition to headlines. Number one. Leading off with the week's top headlines, Amazon is taking another stab at Stephen King's The Dark Tower with The Haunting of Hill House's Mike Flanagan set to adapt the novels. In related news, Flanagan has moved his overall deal from Netflix to Amazon and will continue to develop genre projects for the streamer. And in news unrelated to Flanagan's move, Netflix has canceled his Midnight Club after a single season. Lots going on there, Dan. I honestly hadn't realized that Midnight Club was supposed to be a multi-season project, but... There it goes. I just sort of assumed that it was his annual uh, anthology slash limited series. But of course, I also didn't finish Midnight Club because I found it personally to be less engaging than several of the previous ones. Uh, He's talked for a long time about his desire to adapt The Dark Tower, and he's had a lot of success adapting Stephen King in the past. So if anybody is going to successfully adapt The Dark Tower, I think probably Mike Flanagan is a good bet. 
comma, but I don't think anyone is going to successfully adapt to the Dark Tower, so... Yeah, Glenn Mazzara, the former showrunner of The Walking Dead, tried with a pilot there that didn't go forward, um, so... Yeah, there was there was all there have been multiple variations on the, we're going to do movies, and we're going to do TV shows, and there was the whole elaborate thing that was going to be, there's going to be a movie, there's going to be multiple TV shows, then it's going to branch into another movie, then it's going to branch into a TV show. There's, there's a lot of material in that property, which happens not to be my personal favorite in the Stephen King vein. It just happens to be more in the fantastical slash fantasy realm, whereas I like my Stephen King more in the horror slash thriller slash whatever realm. Anyway, though, I know that obviously it has uh, huge fans and yeah, the the ambition of the of the plans before with the movies and the TV shows intersecting and all of that, it seemed like a lot. And then when the movie came out and and tanked aggressively. I understand why that version of things didn't go forward, but this this seems as likely to be right as anything else. So, yeah, and he's planning multiple seasons with two feature films at the end of it. So, yeah, who well, knows? We'll even, wait and see, like we do with everything else. Even still, I would I would advise him not to think of a multiple platform, multiple media extravaganza tell tell the story however you can on tv it's not like amazon doesn't have the money if they want to pour into it amazon can pour as much money into anything as they want to so one billion dollars for lord of the rings indeed in other streaming news taylor kitsch is reuniting with friday night lights producer peter berg and will star in the straight to series western american primeval for netflix Apple has tapped Jake Gyllenhaal to star in Presumed Innocent, the drama series from David E. Kelly and J.J. Abrams. And Apple has also reteamed with the team behind the limited series Blackbird for the new series Firebug, starring Taron Edgerton and from creator Dennis Lehane. On the broadcast side, Fox is getting out of the country music business and has canceled Monarch after a single season. The show, as you'll recall, or maybe not, was picked up to series in May 2021 and earmarked originally for mid-season before being bumped to the 22-23 broadcast cycle. It was the network's first wholly owned series. Meanwhile, at NBC, the network has handed out a full season order to rookie comedy Lopez versus Lopez. And then at ABC, the Disney broadcaster is getting a jump start on pilot season. Yep, that's coming in with the order for Judgment, a soapy drama set in the Supreme Court. What could go wrong? I mean, every couple of years, somebody tries to do a, a Supreme Court series, and uh, at least one of them has actually made it to TV for a couple episodes. But anyway, um, yeah, bye, Monarch. That was not a good TV show. <laughs> <laughs> I really like when you're succinct, Dan. <laughs> In renewal news, Apple has picked up a second season of the fairly generic drama Surface. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, I couldn't tell you who was in that one. It was Gugu and Batha Ra. I watched all of it. It was not particularly good. Yeah. Over at HBO Max, the streamer continues to thin its unscripted herd with the cancellations this week of Issa Rae's Sweet Life, Legendary, and F-Boy Island. As we've discussed, the streamer will inherit tons and tons of unscripted fare when the service is merged with Discovery Plus in the spring. Reports this week also indicated the new name for the combined service will simply be Max, as insiders have debated the global appeal of the HBO name. In other cancellation news, AMC has unrenewed Moonhaven uh, after the basic cable 
Network revealed major cost-cutting measures following the departure of its CEO after less than a year. That's a little bit too bad. Moonhaven was a quirky and odd show that I was kind of amused actually got a second season uh, because it seems like the kind of thing that could be just a six-episode curio, and now that is what it's going to be. Speaking of truncated curios, HBO has canceled Los Espookies after two seasons, which is just too bad. There's there's nothing else to be said. Uh, that was a show that was a strange and quirky and very clearly not for everybody show. And HBO definitely made people feel like it was a quirky and strange and not for everybody show, basically giving it no promotion whatsoever and putting it in that strange Friday night, 11 p.m. slot. But It was also a really, really, really good show that uh, was like absolutely nothing on television. It was esoteric and weird and distinctly queer, distinctly Latinx. It was its own thing completely and totally. And it is too bad when a show like that with a voice as distinctive and unmistakable as that when it cannot be allowed to survive for whatever the duration is that its creators wanted to, it takes away some of HBO's creative imperative or creative validation or whatever it is. You you know, if you if you aren't nurturing shows like that, if you're simply saying, well, we tried, we couldn't get an audience shrug, it makes HBO less of a special place. And so it is too bad and Los Spookies deserved better and people will discover that show and then it will be one of those where they're confused by why it didn't have a bigger audience, why they had never heard of it, etc. Well, I mean, I feel like I've tried to make sure people have heard of Los Spookies and it's too bad that it didn't work. Yeah, just go ahead and say it one more time, Dan. Los Spookies. There you go. And wrapping up headlines, Comedy Central has enlisted Chelsea Handler, Cal Penn, Al Franken, D.L. Hughley, Leslie Jones, John Leguizamo, Hassan Minaj, Sarah Silverman, Wanda Sykes, and Marlon Wayans as guest hosts for The Daily Show, following host Trevor Noah's December 8th departure. Correspondents and contributors, including Roy Wood Jr. and Desi Lydic, are also expected to guest host. And indeed, so I feel like we've talked plenty about Trevor Noah's departure and i wrote extensively about it but you know it is it's an end of a small era it doesn't feel like it's as much an end of a consequential era as when john stewart left the show but it really is the end of an era and it's the end of a successful era regardless of what random ass conservatives who don't understand television ratings would try telling you so oh well we'll see what they do that is a an interesting list of uh, potential guest hosts none of whom obviously are really and truly lined up to be potential regular hosts for the show. But, you know, it's an interesting group of people and they should be worth watching. Absolutely. Absolutely. Up next, it's time to talk about the Golden Globes again. Number two. That's right. The Golden Globes are heating back up ahead of its January 10th telecast on NBC. The embattled Hollywood Foreign Press Association this week tapped Emmy winner Gerard Carmichael to host its 80th annual award show with nominations set to be unveiled December 12th. The organization has allegedly been overhauled after NBC bailed on the 2021 award show following a report in early 2021 over on the LA Times that the group was lacking black members as well as other financial improprieties. Dan, are we ready to talk about the Golden Globes again? 
does Gerard Carmichael make you want to watch this? Because it kind of makes me want to watch. If I say no uh, to the first part of your question, are we done? And can we just move on to the next topic? Is it as simple as that? Uh, yes. Because yes, it is. Oh, excellent. Do you want to no. say no? Okay, great. Up third. Let's go to the mailbag. No? <laughs> no. I, look, I w- w- can only repeat the same things so many different times. Yeah. And I did multiple times say that nobody should take the hosting job. And I continue to believe that. And I continue to believe that. And it you know, doesn't take away anything at all from my respect and admiration for uh, Gerard Carmichael as both a general comic voice and a general voice, but as a, also as a comic voice who in the past year has has stepped up his importance in the culture and and his and his centrality. Uh, he yeah, he Nathaniel should, was excellent. It was. Terrific. Absolutely. And he did a great job hosting SNL. And so this is kind of a continuation for him. And in a different era, one would think that, okay, this was kind of the next step in Gerard Carmichael's multi-step process towards global domination. Doesn't change the fact that I still think he should have said no here because they are they're absolutely using him as kind of a poster boy of we've changed. And uh, and and so he is being used. There is no question. He is also using them. And it is completely in his prerogative and whatever for him to say, look, if you ask me this in private, I'm a little bit disgusted by the whole organization and to be doing this, but this is a major platform and it is a step in my career that I feel is an important one to take. And I think that is a a totally valid thing for him to want to, to think. I think that he is and was at a somewhat strange place in his career where under normal and different circumstances, he would have been just below the status that they would have been looking for to be hosting this show. He would have been just below the Amy Poehler, Tina Fey, Ricky Gervais category of potential hosts. You would have gone, okay, they're reaching a little bit for Gerard Carmichael as the host. You also would have gone, okay, but this is still a good platform for him again, in previous times. Um, so basically, he's he's taking, they're taking advantage of him and, and the diversity and inclusion that he represents. He's taking advantage of them because it's a platform that, sh- that could slash should be a good platform that maybe he wouldn't have been in conversations with about two years ago. You know, we we have a great interview from our colleague uh, Rebecca Keegan on on THR with the head of the HFPA talking about stuff, and then she said in the we've interview, "We've changed. We've changed so much. Talk about we've changed, and I don't doubt that. And she claims they've had no problems whatsoever. Uh, you know, talking with people about coming to uh, you know present and all of that. And and while they regret that Brendan Fraser says that he's not going to be appearing." regardless because of his past issues with the HFPA and, you know, as, as well, he, (laughs) as well, he should decide not to come out. Uh, they, they, that they're not expecting that that will be kind of the trend that they expect the trend is going to be the people are going to come out and that is totally fine. The interview doesn't get into questions like, did you attempt to ask 75 other people to host first? And were you told no, I don't know. I would guess that there were absolutely a handful of names floated where people said no. 
But look, do I think that Gerard Carmichael will do a good job and that he will be funny and that the things that he will say making fun of the HFPA will be uh, amusing? Absolutely. Of course I do. And hopefully biting. I assume they will. But 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 even still, who cares? Because it's not like Ricky Gervais wasn't biting. No one no one claimed that Ricky Gervais wasn't catty enough about the HFPA. No one said the same about about Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. Everyone always has insulted the HFPA. And for decades, it was a ha ha ha. They're the they're the the whores who gave an award to Pia Zadora and have no taste whatsoever. And ha ha ha. It's so funny that we're all paying attention to them. And then this L.A. Times story basically revealed, OK, well, it's actually significantly worse than that. But and now, you know, a year and a half later, OK, fine, we're back to treating it as if this is the thing that we're supposed to be paying attention to. And and I've said over and over and over again, there was absolutely no reason why anyone needed to salvage the reputation of the HFPA and the Golden Globes. This is not a a storied Hollywood institution. This was a laughing stock that we revealed was worse than a laughing stock. And I don't doubt the sincerity of their attempts to diversify their membership and to eliminate the graft that was part of the embarrassment of it all. Not quite eliminate, because as Rebecca Keegan's story talks about, many members of the HFPA are still being paid to sit on various committees and whatever. The the reality is this award show was always going to be and always was simply a, a marketing piece of star fuckery that was all it ever was it was one that we embraced because we liked watching the star fuckery that's entirely fine but even accepting that they're not the only ones who can be star fuckers you could find another way of doing this without the um to use the word with the dirty undertones without the taint that comes from uh the hfpa and the golden globes which is simply unremovable. It cannot be cleaned up. It cannot be cleaned away. Anyone who accepts a Golden Globe is accepting a tainted award. Anyone who accepts a hosting duty, who accepts a presenting duty, they are simply saying it is more important for us to be part of this commercial for Hollywood than any principles whatsoever. And that's totally fine because it's not like anyone thinks that Hollywood is an incredibly principled place. Anyway, yeah. So again, I do I hope that Carmichael is great? Yes, of course I do. Uh he is he is ridiculously talented and I truly want only the best for him. I want better for him than this gig, but if he is convinced that this gig is the path towards whatever better for him means, God bless. I just would have been happier if they could have been completely unable to find a host. That would have made me feel better about the entire darn thing. What else? Do I got nothing, dude. You said it all, man. I, I, how am I supposed to follow that? I don't know. If there were just other questions about things that we need to talk about, because there are, after all. Uh, I mean, do you care about the nominations? I, I mean, what? What? Let, let's let's try to predict what Emily Paris. <laughs> I don't. I don't know what the. I suspect that the Emily and Parises of this year are more likely to be things like, you know, lots of major nominations for. Lord of the Rings, uh, House of the Dragon, just, you know, I, I suspect it will be a lot of big things. I think it will be a lot of, because that is what they've always enjoyed. It will be a lot of the things that will be big things that people will take out expensive ads on NBC to promote, because that is all that this is, is giving a platform for promotion. 
And so, and so, yeah, you know, do, do I plan on caring? I plan on caring exactly as much as my professional responsibility requires me to care, which is to say, if someone asks me to do analysis, will I? Of course. If someone asks me to talk on a a random radio show about the nominations, of course I will, because that is my job. But if someone asks you to talk on a podcast say next week about Absolutely. this time about if, the if, nominations if, if, eh, give i mean the, the difference there is that we're the ones who would ask us and if we can avoid it i would like to avoid it but but no it, i look if i have to talk about it for professional reasons i will there is no conversation in writing or in speech that i will have with anyone about the golden globes this week that doesn't say some variation on what i just said uh probably the market will depend on whether or not I say star fuckery as much as I did right here. If it is your random local radio station, probably I will not be encouraged to stay to say star fuckery. But otherwise, uh, yeah, it, I, I will care as much as I am required to care. If I am not required to care, then I will care virtually not at all. There were Golden Globes last year. They were presented in a smoke-filled room uh, under the shroud of perpetual embarrassment, and I cared virtually not at all about that. So I'm capable of not caring about this, and I'm also capable of making up the amount that I care as required. But it, is there a nomination, just to play devil's advocate here for a second, is there no. a nomination that they could could have that would make you raise your eyebrows and be like yo you got this right no because because anyone can anyone can get a few things right the the critics choice award nominations that came out last week it, some of them are ridiculous uh and and it continues to be an award show characterized by let's give as many awards as humanly possible because people will show up to accept awards because that's the nature of hollywood but if you go through the awards lots of them are absolutely very very correct and fun and i go hi it's nice that person x is getting uh recognition a- and i'm sure that the golden globes because it's not like the golden globes have ever been a hundred percent wrong about everything they recognize some stuff and i suspect that they will again recognize some stuff that is is decent but no there's nothing that would cause me to feel as if the whole thing was validated no not of course not (laughs) all righty then number three up next, it's time for the mailbag segments. A reminder, if you have questions or topics or reviews or pretty much any general inquiry that you'd like to hear Dan and I discuss on the show, go ahead and drop us an email at TV's top five at THR.com. That's TV's top five, the numeral five at THR.com. Up first, longtime listener Corey asks, what does the end of broadcast TV look like? Surely the future is Peacock, Paramount Plus, Hulu, whatever streaming sites come. So what happens to ABC, NBC, CBS in five to ten years? This sounds like a Leslie question. It does sound like a Leslie question. And um, I think we're already starting to see what is going to become of the broadcast networks in the streaming era. Yes, obviously, the way people consume television has shifted. Everyone's watching on streaming services. There are still a, a, a... a number of people who who are loyal to linear. But I think one of the things that you're going to continue to see is a shift out of the big budget scripted shows and more reliance on unscripted fare. We've seen, you know, we talked about this at the, at the top of the show in headlines when we talked about Monarch ending and the fact that that was Fox's first fully owned scripted show. 
Yes, we've talked on this show for basically since since we launched almost 200 episodes ago about how owning your content really matters because you're really better able to monetize it and control international and streaming rights. But what happens when you can't sell a show internationally because you need those rights? And what happens when you can't sell streaming rights because you need to maintain those rights for your own services? Well, what happens is you get a situation like the CW where they basically sold to Nexstar and now Nexstar is gutting the network of scripted. And we did an interview with Brad Schwartz previously on the site, or I did the interview with Brad on the site before. And he's actually been on the show when he was uh, running Pop TV, which was home to, of course, Schitt's Creek. And what he said is basically going to is probably what you're going to start to see across some of these other networks. If you can find fully owned content, if you're CBS and you've got an NCIS or a spinoff or a reboot of CSI that you own and control all that stuff to, you're going to continue to do that as long as the price point makes sense. If it doesn't, you're going to start to see more and more unscripted stuff that is either owned in-house or produced in-house or is low cost original. So, and that's what what you see, you know, with, with the CW becoming something entirely new, I'm sure there'll, there'll be a network name change in the not too distant future at some point. Um, but I think you're gonna start to see that again at NBC and some of the other big, the big four networks where it, it just, it, it's not economical to do scripted at some of these ratings. You know, when you're looking at, at a show like Monarch had what, a 0.3? Like, that's an expensive show, plus music and everything else. And yes, there was a secondary revenue stream. I don't think anything really became of that because I don't, if it did, <laughs> I don't think they would have canceled it. But it's not cheap to do these shows. And, and as these streaming services have largely shown, you need a big ticket star or a big IP or a big fancy concept. And if you're not going to spend the money on that, then what's left? You're going to do some of these, you know, you're going to do more and more unscripted stuff. And I think that what we've seen in the last couple of years, and obviously this was brought on by the pandemic, was a reduced volume in the number of scripted originals that are airing on broadcast. And I think that's only going to continue on as the price tag on this stuff continues to rise. We've talked for a couple of years now about how much it costs to add in some of the pandemic protocols. You take it, it's, the, the price of talent has not dropped because the price of everything else has gone up. Everything continues to be expensive. There's, you know, you're battling for sound stages now. You're It's competitive for directors and locations and everything else. And as that price tag continues to soar and as linear ratings continue to sink, it's a pretty simple math equation. So that's my my doomsday projection. But of course, I would love to be wrong. No, that's, uh, it was a very big question and that was a fairly succinct and... Uh summarizable answer. So well done. Up next, listener Matthew has asked for a reality roundup with Dan's thoughts on the current season of Survivor. Dan, I know you are a Survivor Survivor loyalist. I am indeed. I will talk now about uh, both Survivor and Amazing Race, and I will do my do my very darndest to avoid spoiling anything. Uh, Amazing Race did have its finale, I guess it would be Wednesday now, so day before yesterday if we're pretending that people are listening to this on Friday. And uh, Survivor has reached its penultimate episode, so I will definitely avoid spoiling The Amazing Race winner, uh, and I will try to avoid spoiling the most recent Survivor episode slash elimination, which was 
absolutely the the most entertaining of the series. It's it's been an interesting series, and I think it's actually been an interesting season for both Survivor and Amazing Race. I, I think that both shows are at this point now very much reflecting the change in CBS casting on both shows, the commitment to enhanced inclusion, um, to sort of shifting more to people with stories than people with, you know, sort of the desire to come out and be big characters. And I think that that has had an impact on the shows that I think in the biggest picture is obviously very, very, very positive. But I think you can see the negatives depending on what the thing is that you look for in these reality shows. So I think one thing that is very notable about these two seasons of television that are currently running, this season of Survivor, which is 43, and The Amazing Race season, which is 34, which is also remarkable. I mean, stop and think for a second that there have been 77 seasons of these two shows. That is that is bonkers. But I don't think that we've ever had a run of these shows that have been as villain-free as these seasons have been lately. And, and I think that it's the kind of thing that very much is going to be determined by what you look for and what you enjoy in a reality show. Do you enjoy Colin bellowing at Christy on Amazing Race, even if at the end of the day, that was a truly abusive relationship that we were watching out playing, watching play out on television? Is that a thing that you find entertaining on reality TV? The answer in many cases is going to be yes. I watch to watch horrible people and to watch them lose. Um, but for some people, that's a source of discomfort. And I think that's actually always been a case uh, with The Amazing Race, is, is because the show is built on pairings and partnerships, when you get a pairing and a partnership that is clearly toxic and unappealing, some people will find that entertaining and good TV. Other people will find it really unpleasant to watch. And I think that part of why this Amazing Race season was so very entertaining and generally enjoyable was because the teams were almost completely simply likable. And, uh, you know, that does take something away. If you like watching fighting, if you like watching backstabbing, if you like watching people misinterpreting the rules of the show so that if, you know, people team up and then the losers get bitter or if there's a detour, uh, not detour, roadblock, whatever the heck it is where people have to sit and wait or do the extra challenge. I'm blanking. I'm going to blame COVID. Uh, and, and then everyone goes, I can't believe they used that thing, which is a piece of the game. If that's part of why you watch, this was a really, really dull season of The Amazing Race because... Nobody was fighting. Nobody was disagreeing. And even within the teams themselves, we got rid of almost all of the teams at the beginning of the season that were actually not toxic. I don't think there was anyone toxic that, that just felt as if they were there for stunt reasons. So we got rid of the Rex Ryan team. And I was very glad to get rid of the Rex Ryan team because Rex Ryan is loosely entertaining as a, as a football coach and as a football analyst. But on The Amazing Race, basically, it was a lot of, oh, well, I'm Rex Ryan. And now I'm going to talk about 
my football crap and whatever. And, and it added nothing. And then there was the one father daughter duo where basically the daughter threw consecutive episodes of temper tantrums and you kind of needed to get her off the show simply because it was just clear that this kind of adversity was not something she was going to respond to in an entertaining way that basically she spent an entire episode going i want to quit i want to quit i want to quit and then she got an extra episode to do that and then finally they got sent home and it was like whew, thank god okay because you just don't know sometimes people when they face adversity they do it in in funny ways or they do it in relatable ways you know the various different people with their fears of of heights um for example you know claire having a meltdown attempting to do whatever fear of heights thing she had to do in in the episode earlier this season it was very heightened drama and and when she got down after having successfully done it and she had the actual breakdown and she was just sobbing for several minutes it, it was tough to watch but it was tough to watch in a wholly relatable way maybe that is the way that you would respond to something like that but for the most part it was a lot of good people who seemed like decent people and liked to get along. It was a lot of married couples who absolutely seemed cute and good for each other. So you had uh, uh, Lewis and Michelle. That's the kind of couple where they could get really annoying in a hurry, you know, calling each other babe and all the time and, and uh, hugging each other and being all close and coupley. But no, they were actually entirely cute and enthusiastic as a couple. You had Derek and Claire, you know, dating reality contestants, it, it can be really irksome. And instead, all season long, even when one of them or the other of them was screwing something up or getting stressed out about something, you could actually see watching the season how they were helping each other and how they were good for each other as a couple. And then you had my favorite couple, which was the long lost uh, uh, sisters, um, Emily and Molly. And and even if they hadn't had to deal with the fact that one of them had a major knee injury in like the second episode of the season, they kept going. The idea of this relationship between sisters who discovered the existence of the other one year earlier, 35 years never knowing that the other existed, um, that, that was beautiful. And it was emotional. Every single interaction they had, every time they realized the thing that they had in common that they never would have known that they had in common despite their different upbringings, it, it was all just really beautiful. And uh, the travel this season was obviously impacted by COVID, and, and that was just what it was. But it was still – there were some good challenges. Uh, there was an over-reliance on dance-related challenges early in the season. And that was a bit annoying to me because, like, half of the contestants had dance experience. So it was, like, one after the other going, ooh, choreography. Well, I'm a professional cheerleader. Choreography. Ooh, I dance with Pitbull. And everyone was like, okay, great. Well, that's – I mean, <laughs> it's a little bit like when somebody wins – Dancing with the Stars or wins on The Masked Singer and they're just a professional singer or they're just a professional dancer. It's like, well, you're kind of cheating the whole purpose of the show, but whatever. Uh, th there was a lot of that, but in general, it felt like a much more fluid season than the first post-COVID season or the half-and-half -half COVID season, the last one. Uh, so yeah, it was it was a good season and and it got down to like a final five or six where it wasn't going to matter to me who won. I was I was perfectly fine with all of them. The military brothers bored me a little, but they weren't bad. They were in no way bad people. So, um, so yeah, I I liked where the season ended and I don't think I've spoiled anything. And since I haven't spoiled anything, it's better to move on back to Survivor since. Um, that was where we started. Uh, and the Survivor has also been in that strange position of, of having to transition 
because, again, COVID. They had to shorten the season. They made a lot of different accommodations and twists in the last couple seasons uh, that there was kind of the amusement of all of the things that changed in the two seasons that aired last year, and basically nobody had seen it, so there were a lot of the things that surprised people. There were a lot of advantages they hadn't known about. There were the whole there was the whole prisoner's dilemma thing on the island that uh, that no one knew about, and so it had the the freshness. This season has been kind of the second phase of that, and that's always the case in Survivor. You introduce something new, and it surprises everyone, and no one knows what to do with it, and that's one exciting phase of things. Then the second phase is, okay, now everybody knows about it. How did they respond? And either they respond by using things brilliantly, or they respond by basically talking themselves out of everything in the game. And the strategy becomes this sort of internal monologue of there are 850 advantages on the season. What do we do with them? And then it turns out that nobody does anything. And that was the case with this season for like the first uh first half, basically, was people talking about idols and talking about advantages and then not using them. And that's kind of entertaining. I will, as listeners know, I am closer to a purist. You give me one immunity idol and otherwise a pure game, and that to me is what I like Survivor to be. This is too much, but I can't say that the past couple episodes weren't entertaining. I thought that the uh, the play of of the basically dice rolling uh, attempted immunity two episodes ago, it produced an interesting twist. It didn't produce high drama, but it produced an interesting strategic twist and and possibly a very bad decision. And then this week, it, it was just extremely entertaining because this week we had idols being played, but we also had people talking about what the idols meant. And there was a lot of... Uh, there was a lot of twistiness to that that I thought was really very effective and very entertaining. And um, one thing I've appreciated about this season, and it goes back again to the lack of quote-unquote villains. There was no one this season, the entire season long, who I hated. It's totally fine. But also, there hasn't been the bitterness this season that you sometimes get where people feel pissed off about blindsides. For the most part, people have been appreciative of being blindsided. They've appreciated the strategy. And without spoiling exactly what happened this week, I would say that out of 43 seasons of Survivor and hundreds upon hundreds of contestants, most of them over the past uh, 43 seasons would have been genuinely ripshit about what happened at the end of the last Tribal Council. They, they would have been angry even though it was completely and totally in the spirit of the game, I appreciated that the person to whom it happened was obviously shattered by it, but was was pretty philosophical and pretty reasonable. We'll see if that person gets pissy at the jury, because that's always the question. Is, is the jury going to come out appreciative or is the jury going to come out, um, you know, whatever? Uh, but but I, I liked that the person who was eliminated was both crushed and admiring of what had happened. But I think we're sort of, we're we're nearing the end of the season and most of the people are fairly engaging contestants. And, you know, you can go back to uh, uh, Noel, who was the first uh, full amputee 
on Survivor, and she was an interesting contestant. And, you know, sort of, I think everyone very correctly realized that nobody was going to be able to tell a better story than her. And so she got eliminated roughly at the time she should have, but but she was inspiring. I thought that Sammy at, at 19 was entertaining. I thought his, his send-off interview where he talked about how he's 19 and probably it was just as well he didn't win a million dollars because he would have done something stupid with it because he's been getting into Teslas. I thought that was entertaining. I think uh, a lot of the people we have remaining have played interesting games. I think that Owen has played an interesting uh, game as an underdog the entire season. I think that's an interesting approach to playing Survivor. I think that Gabler has done similar things where he's he's been an underdog, but he's also been manipulative in interesting ways. I think Carla's played a, a really good strategic game. Um, I think Cassidy was invisible for the first half of the season, but I think she's done some interesting things in the past couple uh, episodes. I think Jesse's playing a good, a really, really, really good game. Um, I thought that Cody was extremely intelligent and amusing. Well, maybe not intelligent, but amusing. So, yeah, it, it comes down to uh, when we get to the end, am I going to be pissed off at anybody winning? And I think of the people remaining this season, I can see the arguments that most of them would make. And I'm I'm game with with seeing where it goes. Uh you know, all of the things that that I have problems with, there, there's only so much that can be done. You know, I again, I would like there to be fewer advantages and, and silly twists and stuff that that will always be my preference is simpler. I would also someday love for the show to go someplace that isn't Fiji again, uh, just I, I liked the different locations. I liked the different themes. I It was a thing I enjoyed about the show. And I understand completely and totally why we continue to be in Fiji every single year. It is it is efficient on every level, and I know why it happens. I just miss the idea. Like, for years and years and years, it was, will Survivor ever go to another... Uh, will Survivor ever go to a cold-weather location? And it was very clear that American Survivor was never going to do that. But all of the different terrain that we got from China to the Tokachins to there were there were a lot of locations and we haven't gotten locations for a while. And that's too bad. But again, that is a complaint where I understand the practical realities of it. And yeah, that, that, those are my thoughts on the current seasons of Survivor and The Amazing Race. A reminder, if you have questions or topics you'd like to hear us discuss on the podcast, go ahead and email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. Up next, it's time for our showrunner spotlight segment. Number four. Our guest this week is Brandon Jacobs Jenkins, who makes his showrunning debut on FX and Hulu's upcoming drama Kindred, based on the landmark sci-fi novel by Octavia Butler. Jacobs Jenkins is a playwright whose Gloria and everybody were finalists for the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. He has previously worked on HBO's Watchmen and Amazon's Outer Range for the small screen. Thanks so much for joining us, Brandon. Thank you so much. So, okay, let's let's go to sort of the beginning and origins of this. When did you first encounter Octavia Butler, both in general and then uh, Kindred in specific? Yeah. Um, I mean, I've been reading Octavia Butler about as long as I've been reading. I was a huge kind of speculative fiction sort of nut in my early teens. I was like reading Stephen King too young, had a very healthy, healthy obsession with Ray Bradbury. And um, I had this kind of, we had this kind of family babysitter who watched my younger siblings and she spied my absolute 
book nerd shelf and was like, I have this feeling you might be into this woman, Octavia Butler. Um, and this was sort of pre-Amazon and you had to like go buy books by yourself with your human body in a bookstore. Um, and she brought me a couple of books that are, were now known as like the Patternist series. And I was like kind of obsessed because it was the first time I'd seen kind of like brown people on the cover of these books. And they kind of looked like me and they were in cool universes. And I like devoured, devoured, devoured those books. And like, as I could, like when I encountered them in various bookstores, kind of amassed a bit of a collection. Um, but Kindred was actually one of the last books that I wound up reading, I think in college, because at the time there she was kind of hip to begin teaching her in various kind of women's studies and African-American literature classes. And it was very shocking to see her name on the syllabi. I thought of her as like fun reading. Um, and that was probably my first sort of like entanglement with the book and it had a very profound effect on me for a lot of reasons. And I sort of kept up with it and reread it a few times over the years. And sometime around 2010, after rereading it, I was like, oh, I think this might be a TV show. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then it became this like obsession, this like Moby Dick kind of situation that I took to my agents. And I was like, can we figure out how to make this happen? And of course, I could not get arrested with this idea for, for many, many years after. But that was the beginning. <laughs> now, as you were coming to that conclusion that this was something that you wanted to adapt, was there kind of a, a eureka moment in your head where you felt like you had whatever it was going to take to unlock the book, to unlock the idea of adapting this? Uh, not entirely. I mean, I definitely sort of knew it would want to play in the contemporary as opposed to in the 70s. But really, I mean, the entirety of my career, I mean, I, I have a pretty large footprint in my life as a playwright and working in the theater, you know, where I do a lot of adaptation. I sort of have always been guided just by fandom. Like I just, uh, for me, the, ex the excitement of adaptation is getting the chance to sort of like spend a lot of time with the mind I admire and kind of expanding a universe or a world that I have a lot of purchase in or investment in and explore and want to explore. So it's not a big book, like in terms of page numbers, et cetera. When did you decide or how did you decide that you wanted to approach it not as a movie or a miniseries, but as an ongoing drama? You know, it's funny. The minute I read the book, I was like, I bet what's happening here is people want to make this a movie, but actually it's a TV show because it's so much about time and like relationships and watching a person literally over the course of their lives. And I just felt like you needed to have that kind of canvas of television in that long form to really create that effect in a viewer, that, that idea of intimacy and just like the experience of life itself kind of moving in front of you, you know, Um and I was right. I mean, once I sort of tried to figure out how to get the rights, I was like, oh, right, this book's been under option since its publication in 1979. And that entire time, the attempt has been to try to make it into a feature. But yeah, it's impossible. it wouldn't be possible to crack in that way. There's just too much richness in the book itself and in, in, in the themes, you know. So, beginner's so, luck, maybe. You know, you mentioned that you first started kicking this around in 2010 with your agents and couldn't get and had had no takers, no feelers for this. So what changed? You know, where here we are, obviously, some time later. Did you shop this? Did what did 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 television have to change? Obviously, the, you know, the limited series was reborn. The interest in that was reborn again years ago. But that I, I think really helped shift the medium into doing more stories that are short order multiple season type things but i'm i'm curious you know when when did the water start to turn warm from from the cold 
Yeah, I mean, I think Obama helped. <laughs> you know, I think there was suddenly this desire to uh, acknowledge like race as a social phenomenon that touches all the lives, all viewers' lives in some way. Um, I wouldn't be lying if I, I would be lying if I didn't say that like Get Out and the success of Get Out really did kind of like rejigger the industry's appetite for content by people of color that might have addressed like a genre element in some way, you know? Um, it, I mean, I would say it, it literally took us six years to find a buyer. And, you know, one of the first people to make that offer was FX when we, when we got into the room with them. Um, but, you know, ironically enough, you know, because Octavia Butler is always sort of ahead of her time, I feel like in some ways, <laughs> It, the, the, we're now catching up to that time she was so ahead of. Um, it was amazing to watch sort of the culture become, like catch on to her and her importance and who she was. So I think people didn't know Octavia Butler from Adam, you know, when you mentioned her name or kind of made the case that this was some sort of like iconic or classic piece of literature deserving something. And I will say too, like, even though we'd sold it in 2016, there was that kind of interesting debacle around like uh, Benioff and Weiss's Confederates that was sort of announced with such pride uh, in the New York Times without any real script or, you know. Um, and, and in the kind of like talk back pieces or think pieces about it, the word, you know, kindred kept coming up. And I think suddenly everyone was like, well, what is this kindred thing? You know, and by that point, luckily, we'd been locked in with this development at FX. But the process, you know, take me through that the pitch at the time with before you it landed at FX. You said that FX was, of course, one of the the places that that you know had interest in it. But did you get a lot of passes? I mean, who passed on this before FX said yes, and who else did you consider? Yeah, we didn't actually have a ton of passes. I mean, at the time, I had been doing, I had had a very wonderful and fruitful and you know, very formative relationship with HBO. And uh, I was working with Protozoa Pictures during Aronofsky's company with Ari Handel. And, um, you know, we took it to HBO. They passed on it. I mean, to their credit, it was like the very day that um, uh, Lombardo was let go. So I think that those poor execs were in a bit of state of shock. You know, it's like truly the worst timing of pitch. (laughs) Yeah, in the history of probably television. Uh, Then, you know, six months later, we were like, you know, we head out to get all get on our plane and head out to LA. And FX was the first pitch, and it was, and they bought it in the room. So there was something going on. This is like the fall of 2016, where people were kind of primed. And you know, that's nice when that happens because then, you know, the people are call, your agents calling ahead to the other pitches, going, get just so you know, this happened. And it felt like it felt like a good day uh, in, in my life, ultimately. Um, and you know, I think. Uh, I, 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 looking back on it, I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty. I feel like there were things in the pipeline that were about to be huge that were happening that, so something was in the air, I guess. I don't know what, I'm not, I don't live out here. I don't know the texture of, of, of the life of the pitcher or the, the exec out here, but, you know, Handmaid's Tale was sort of just about to kind of come out. Um, and so there was clearly a taste for kind of elevated genre happening. Um, I think, there was something about like this kind of literary turn towards adaptation that was also kind of happening. So it all kind of feels like random coincidence when you, when you think about it, but. Yeah. And you know, how much of the shape of this ongoing series, whether it's the episode count, the season, the number of seasons you have in mind, et cetera, were you initially able to pitch? 
Well, originally we pitched, you know, a full broadcast season, you know, it's just this sort of, it predates the kind of upswing of streaming. And we thought we were going to be in the air. You know, I sort of like hype about FX because Atlanta had dropped and I was like, something's happening here, you know. Um, and back then my assumption was that it was a 10 to 12, really 12 episode order. Um, but then of course we developed and developed and developed the, you know, the universe shifts around you. Um, and we went into our writer's room with a eight episode order. <laughs> um, and that's, you know, that's not a ton of canvas, especially on a, a, a kind of high concept book like this one, you really have to like walk people through what's happening. Um, but we, we try, you know, we tried to make it work and, you know, you, you do, you use what you get, you know. And knowing that you have eight episodes for this first season, do you have how much of a, a, a map to the future do you have laid out? Do you see this as like six seasons? I mean, very few shows actually get to that at the, at this point, even on cable, um, but or but in, and even fewer on streaming. But what's your overarching uh, vision for the series? Well, I mean, you have a you have a plan A, B, C, D, E, and F, right? Um, I would say that we, you know, in, the, in this first season, we cover only about a third of the material of the book. And I think part of the attack on the book is to see if we can kind of expand the universe and like occupy these rooms that are uh, quite small in the book. I spent a lot of time early in the development process going through her papers, reading old drafts. And, you know, she kind of calls this famously the book that she feel like, felt like she'd ever cracked. And I was like, well, it'd be nice to kind of think about what she felt like she didn't crack about it. Could we do that reparative work in series now that we have a bigger canvas? You know, she's writing in the 70s, whatever her word count uh, 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 requirements were. Um, so I think the book itself, it's, you know, on its own, if you were trying to just stay with it, could give you, could yield you about three to four seasons. But I think we're working really hard to kind of um, lay in some kind of engine that actually might take us beyond that and uh, put some kind of pressure on on what's there. You know, that's the dream. Yeah. You know, we've talked a little bit about how Darren Aronofsky wound up being connected with this, but you know, in terms of the other producers, it's kind of a, an, an all-star team that you've got here in terms of you're also working with the Americans duo of Joe Weisberg and Joel Fields. How did those guys get involved here? And, once the sh and what role did they eventually play? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say maybe about a year or two into our development process, which was quite uh, quite slow, partly because I also like wear fifteen hats. But um, you know, we were getting we were kind of banging our heads against the wall with this one note, which had to do with uh, the kind of romantic relationship at the heart of it. And I was a I was a gigantic, I'm still a huge fan of the Americans. And I think in a meeting, I'd said to them like, I'd love to talk to these Americans guys because I know that Joel had uh, a friend of mine, Stephen Levinson had made a show called Fosse Vernon and I knew that uh, Joel had stepped in and done some interesting help for him in that process. And they were New York based and I just really needed someone to kind of like, you know, bless Perzoa and these guys, but they're, you know, their primary, um, their resume is mostly made up of feature work. And I think that long form is its own kind of special animal in the development sense. So, um, you know, I would just meet with them every week and <laughs> we would talk through some ideas. I'd go away, I'd do some writing, um, and that was when our relationship became formalized. And that was maybe around 20, I would say that was actually early 2020, because I was with them when I first heard about what COVID was. Yeah. I'd love to hear a little bit more about the research that you said that you were doing into Octavia Butler's papers. Like, what, what did that consist of? How long was the process? What did you feel like you took away from that that people will be able to see in the series that maybe people who just read the books might not? No, or the book singular, rather, might not know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say early on, um, I, I mean, research is always a huge part of 
any process I have with any project. Early on, once we had this kind of green light in the blessing of the estate, uh, we were given access to well, her papers are at the Huntington Library, in, like in Pasadena. Um, and I took a trip out here of my decades and spent about uh, two weeks just sort of reading through uh, anything I could find that was sort of kindred focused. Um, and this was after doing my own sort of like reading around the scholarly literature of kindred and just trying to have the fullest picture I could of like how how it lives in like the discourse basically and what the kind of how people kind of perceive the major themes. And you know, she was a bit of a graphomaniac. I mean, she was one of those writers who really was a workhorse and explored every kind of path of the forest before she ultimately made the decision she did that created the novel we now know as Kindred. But what was interesting to me was how many, um, I'd already been gun having sort of instincts about how to expand the world. And I realized she'd already explored those. You know, she had uh, this sort of mother character in some of these drafts and she sort of backed away from it for some reason. You know, originally she had conceived of it as a part of this other series where she would be this descendant of this character named Doro in the Patternist books, but then she made this call to like make Dana an orphan. And I was like, well, that's interesting because the book is kindred and yet she sort of had to make this choice to isolate her from a kind of genealogy. And I was like, I wonder what's this, what's the version of this where we pick up this instinct she had to really give Dana some sense of family and some sense of like lineage. And that was, that's what's led to like a major kind of change, I think, for a lot of people in the, the property itself. Um, you know, I really just was like interested in that book is chock full of like little characters who pop on for a minute. And if you really go through her papers, you realize she gave them full stories. You know, they were fully fleshed out people who exerted kind of interesting pressures on the hero. And I just wanted to kind of lean into those ideas and lean and sort of bring them out maybe. Um, yeah. You mentioned Confederate and the whole kerfuffle around that. And and when that one was announced, of course, people have, have kind of forgotten that there was at the same time, there was also the Aaron Magruder project that was in the same vein, that was also an alt history of America if the Civil War had gone differently. As those stories are being reported and as people are kind of blowing up on Twitter about them, as people do, as you personally were thinking of what you were doing with Kindred, was there something in your head that was reassuring you, okay, here's why people are responding badly to these projects. Here is why they will not respond as badly <laughs> if it actually comes out that I am making this and this is happening. Well, I never knew people would not respond as badly to anything I did, but I did have the great luck of a property that had sort of was beloved. I mean, this is a 45-year-old book, essentially, and I sort of felt like, at the very least, the concepts at the heart of this have achieved some sort of, like, wider approval, or there's some agreement that this there's something, she's up to something here that might be worth giving a second or two more of thought to. Um, and I think for me... You know, alt history is just different than actual history, like a sci-fi history element. I think there's a real element of, um, you know, there's a real element of like projecting uh, and fantasy, fantasy that happens when we sort of imagine this sort of future place. But this is really a book about a contemporary person going back to the past. And so I felt there was something much more tangible and oddly less sort of sticky you know, because no one was necessarily going to accuse an artist of not examining their own biases or, you know, their own kind of agendas and imagining a future. We're, we're going to base this on historical research. We're going to talk about what it is to be alive now. Um, and that's kind of the parameters. You know, I think people are just 
they can enter that space imaginatively with less baggage, I would say, like less suspicion. But at the same time, narrativizing trauma, especially in genre context, it's always a, a minefield, whether it's uh, dramatizing events that are sort of a part of our central consciousness, like the Civil War or like the Holocaust, or whether it's something that maybe has a little bit less public awareness, like the Tulsa massacre. I I'm curious, as you started the adapting process, how conscious were you of the things that you didn't want to do, you didn't want to depict when it came to dramatizing slavery? Um, well, you know, in my work as a playwright, this is like the material in my life. Like I've been writing about slavery for like 15 years. So, and I, you know, I teach it, I study it. So I, there was, I didn't have a ton of discomfort. It wasn't very novel material for me to actually approach that big idea of writing about slavery. I would say that in terms of personal taste, I just, one thing I knew is I wasn't interested in aestheticizing violence, right? I didn't want people to be able to sit back and go, like, how, what a beautifully shot <laughs> scene of harm, <laughs> you know? And for me, there are real ethics in the represent representation of violence, you know? And I feel like I didn't want to... Um, it felt important to me that I honor the experience of the suffering. You know, I, I, put, that, I put a primacy on that, and maybe that was the kind of boundary or bumper I set up for myself in, in the depiction. But also this book itself, Octavia Butler was never, she was always interested in kind of exploding cliches or really forcing us to kind of rethink our assumptions. And I think that part of her impulse behind this book was to really make an intervention in the wider imagination about how we think through slavery. You know, I'm always saying that nothing has, has done more harm to our understanding of slavery than film and television, right? It's kind of created the iconic imagery of Gone with the Wind that we now always associate with a plantation, right? And she was setting this specifically in Maryland. She was setting it on a tobacco farm. She was looking at the kind of things behind the things. And I felt ultimately like that should be our kind of beacon or guiding light. It's like, let's try to find a new way to show this or think through this um, and not sort of drift into the same kind of, you know, ruts of let's tie someone to a tree and whip them or, you know, the things that we all associate with this or expect from this, this genre ultimately. Does that answer the question? Sorry. Oh, no, it, it absolutely yeah, does. Okay. I, I'll, I'll let Leslie go, but then I do have, I have, I have actually a couple follow-ups sort of to that. Okay. Well, as you, as you mentioned, our, image of slavery, I guess, is is to some degree, of course, just defined by Gone with the Wind, defined by, you know, Birth of a Nation, even if it's 20 years after, etc. And very clearly, as you say, this is this is Maryland. This is not the Deep South. This is a fairly limitedly successful plantation. This is not a vast cotton field. This is also it's the early 1800s, as opposed to as we're approaching the Civil War and all of that. What freedom did you feel because of those points of differentiation that you knew that you weren't going to go down the familiar paths because there was already a new path that you were on? Mm -hmm. Freedom I felt in the writing or just in the overall kind of production itself? In the, Both, in, but, but starting with the writing. Yeah. I mean, I just sort of knew that it, people wouldn't know, wouldn't be able to make kind of presumption presumptions about things they were seeing. Like no one has really seen tobacco field, no people working tobacco fields. So I wouldn't have to be navigating someone's like anxieties about, you know, I think people see a cotton field full of black people. They there if something starts to happen instinctively about how they want to lean into or not to that that kind of emotional display. Um, I thought there was a lot of opportunity just to kind of like 
occupied this interesting kind of hole in terms of like, right, early, kind of this early uh, phase of, of uh, American history before kind of cotton wealth took hold. I think things would just kind of feel new and strange, hopefully, and it would train the eye to be more receptive to, to things that might be more novel, maybe. And and along those lines, you mentioned the desire not to aestheticize violence, and I, I think that's I think that's very clear in the first eight episodes of the first season. But I think it's also notable because in the book, Octavia Butler structures the thing that the main character does, the time traveling aspect, around these senses of near death experience. So the violence has to be built into the structure. And yet you didn't want to depict the violence. So how did you kind of approach what you had to do to make the story move forward versus what you didn't want to do as a storyteller with your own preferences yeah. to the story? Well, in the book, you know, it's written from her first, it's written from the first person. And so these descriptions of her travel and being shunted back and forth are actually quite sensory based. They're not, there's never a moment where someone zooms out and describes our hero being put under some sort of horrible pressure. And I felt like we would just try to find some kind of cinematic language that honored that very subjective sense of it. It's a lot of POV shots and things like that. And I do think that there's ultimately a longer game thematically in the book about, you know, the longer she, the more she goes back to the past and the more she's exposed to violence, the more inured to it she becomes, right? So it becomes harder for her to get home. And so you're ultimately talking about a numbing that happens over the course of things. And we wanted to make sure we gave ourselves a bit of runway to really play that idea out, right? After a while, it's like she's going to be able to see all kinds of things and have it mean nothing to her, experience nothing to her because she's so used to it ultimately. So it felt like important to establish a kind of base there, you know, rather than kind of play, once you kind of start playing like the highest sensation you can, where do you really go? Where do you really go from there? You know? Leslie, what were you doing? Oh, sorry. (laughs) Yeah, I I was curious, you know, how did the conversations in, in the writer's room for Watchmen inform the writing questions on Kindred, and are there differences that you discovered of approaching widely known trauma versus trauma where you maybe had the freedom or responsibility to introduce that to viewers? Mm. I mean, you know, ironically, I was developing Kindred all alongside being in the Watchmen room, so there was, I'm sure, like, incredible cross-pollination between the two texts, ultimately. Um, You know, and I would say, and I think maybe the writers in the Watchmen would agree that I was a bit of the, of the, um, the referee for that exact theme you're kind of talking through, like, you know, wanting to really think through the implications of um, representing this this kind of material, you know. Um, I would say, again, like, I feel very comfortable around these themes. I've been working on these themes for a while. I have my kind of, uh, I guess, a very good sense of, like, my vocabulary that I use and my approaches, you know, my rhetoric around it. And it was a very different experience to be kind of sitting at the head of that table and leading those discussions ultimately. But, um, again, you know, the Washington Washington was was an alternative history. It was a projecting into the future, and you're kind of uh, talking about people's capacity to imagine things in that scenario versus... Um, something that sort of looks more backwards where your writers are talking about things we can prove, things we can read about, things we can see, you know, you're sort of protected by the real in that way, ultimately. Um, Because it's not, you know, no one has to be held accountable for the fact that there seems to be no Black characters in this future that you keep thinking and talking about across the table from me. So why is that, you know? Damon has, uh, Damon Lindelof has talked very 
vocally and publicly about his sense as he went into the Watchmen story that there were certain things he couldn't tell himself as a white man and wanting to make sure that he had a room that was more able to tell certain parts of the story than he was. When you assembled your own writer's room for Kindred, what were you looking for in terms of voices who could tell parts of the story that you didn't feel like you could tell yourself? Hmm. Um, I mean, in terms of casting that room, I definitely felt there was a great premium for me on sort of female subjectivity, like a, like a very easy access to that. And it was very important to me, kind of taking a bit of a, um, a cue from Damon that it wasn't enough for me to put like one or two people in that room. I wanted to flood it with as many different people who could stay kind of some claim to this material and, and make sure there was a sense of like dimension and debate always on, on the table. Um, I also felt that though I obviously someone who comes from genre and loves and loves genre stuff, there's a certain kind of class of television writer that comes up in those rooms and just understands the game of mythology much faster and much quicker. And uh, there was, we had some folks there who felt very comfortable with that stuff. And it was very fun to kind of pit them against the like textured, you know, premium prestige people who want everyone to just like look at, you know, paintings and cry or whatever. Um, and, you know, it's very important, too, to have, you know, not everyone can write historical drama. You know, it's it's a real feat. It's real muscle. And we needed folks who were very good, who could, like, really pitch into those voices and into that syntax, into that time period. And that was also super important to me, ultimately. And there was also, you know, I'm not an Angelino. And so I felt like I needed people who understood that kind of texture of life in California and those sort of politics, especially as they related to sort of race relations across the board, you know? So there was a kind of like interdimensionality, intersectional sort of um, bar I set for myself, but it, it surprisingly wasn't very difficult to pull together, uh, especially at the time that I was working. You talked about the the clash between the people with maybe more interest in the genre trappings versus the historical trappings of this story. And it's very much unquestionably a science fiction story, but like the novel, it's only sometimes interested in the mechanics of time travel, the mechanics of this thing that is happening to the main character. As you got into the actual adapting, did you find yourself more or less interested in those aspects? Interested in the, ooh, how is this happening? What are the rules? What are the, What's the game? Or were you more like, I just want to spend time in these worlds with this main character? I definitely am the, of the former. I mean, I just love rules. I like understanding the rules and kind of the mythology that kind of undergirds something. I would say what's interesting, so there was a ton of time spent being like, okay, so she's there for a minute. How many seconds are in the past? You know, we were doing all this math, all these spreadsheets, you know, okay, so she leaves here. She always comes back to this room, but what does this mean if, the if she leaves here? What happens here? You know, that stuff feels like that's kind of the hard work, the, the, the foundation you have to lay the ground for it, any kind of genre show. Um, I would say, though, that what's interesting about our situation is, you know, we can, as the viewers, only learn as much as our hero knows. And so the real challenge became, well, how do you kind of piecemeal, how do you like lay that kind of yellow brick road to Oz that contains all the like rules and things the audience needs to know to really um, be able to track the game of this? Because you're right, the book itself very famously never resolves why this is happening to her, how this is happening to her. And I guess that's what pushes it into some sort of like literary allegorical space of poetry, you know, but I think that's a much harder thing to sustain, honestly, 
um, in television. I say that loud, I think of The Leftovers, so do I know. But that sort of, I still feel like, you know, an audience craves answers and you got to give them, you got to give them at least half a spoonful, you know, to shut them up. So that was sort of the the kind of challenge for us was like really trying to as as gracefully as we can, as efficiently as we can lay out what, what could, what is, what needed to be known now in order to keep us moving to, towards the bigger, the bigger answer. And you mentioned this earlier, the book was published in 1979 and it's set in 1976. And that of course gives it this kind of resonant bicentennial parallel of American aspiration versus American reality and falling short, etc. As you decided what you wanted your contemporary moment to be, and I believe it's 2016, right? Not 2022. Right. Mm-hmm. How mm-hmm. did you decide where you wanted to situate it and what you wanted your own parallels to be? Um, for exactly the reasons you just cited, I feel like I wanted to kind of honor or be in the grain of Octavia's original impulse, which is that, you know, 1976 was a big, strange year of great ironies for, uh, for the American public. And I felt 2016 had a similar echo. It was very, you know, it was very nice. It was exactly 40 years later. Right. Um, but I feel like that was the last year we can all kind of agree on what was happening maybe. (laughs) And, um, I'm sure that, you know, history books will turn it into a pivot point for us in some ways as we assess the history we're moving through right now. Um, and I just wanted a moment that felt almost like prelapsarian or like idyllic. You know, this. You know, it's like it. It seemed. It seemed like it was all going to be great. You know, so of course it's like easy to go on a date with someone of a different race and not have to talk about politics and to not be wearing a mask and not be asking whether or not they think Black Lives Matter. You know, it was just, uh, and I was curious about a show where possibly over the course of its life, that period begins to feel as much like a hermetic moment in history as 1810, 1815, 1819. And I found it interesting, and this is, again, going back to the book, sort of the things that people didn't know at that point in 1979, the details people didn't have at their disposal, the conversations that they weren't prepared to have in 1979, 1976. I'm curious if you think that we're more informed now that we're more ready to have these conversations or does the rise of freaking out about critical race theory and stuff, does it suggest to you that actually we're, we're maybe less ready to have these conversations now? Mm. Um, I think we're as ready to have them as we were back then. I think we have uh, more vocabulary than we did. So that conversation might be a little more fine grained, uh, and perhaps more effective, but, you know, in the same way that, like, I guess what we're, what we're suggesting here is that we've evaded a conversation for 40 years, 40 years of American history has continued to move on. So we have to not only address what happened before 1976, we got to address what was happening for like the 40 years between that and 2016. So, you know, I think there's, you know, this idea of whether or not we're going to like have the conversation that puts everyone to peace and let we can put history to bed and feel good about ourselves and feel repaired and feel equity. You know, that's the kind of imperative that seems to just going to, it's going to haunt Americans for as long as Americans are around, you know? Um, But I think less than sort of provoking that kind of UN summit, you know, I think that Kindred the novel and hopefully the show itself is just trying to be 
a space where people can think deeply amongst themselves about these issues and and assess how they feel, you know, assess their feelings about being people of history and being in relationship to history and find maybe the courage to go out and have the have that big conversation on their own terms, you know. Um, put, it seems like a lot of pressure to put on any kind of story to solve the ills of the universe. You know, all you're trying to do is give people confidence and tools to um, ask and answer questions about their own lives, I think. Going back to a change you mentioned from the book, Kevin, Dana's husband in the book, he's been largely reconceived here. And I'm curious if you knew from the beginning that he he would have to basically be a different character. So there's still the there's still the interracial relationship, which is at the the center of it. And that's a that's a major source of drama. But he, he's a very different person here. When did you decide that you wanted him to be and what did you decide that you needed him to do differently here? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'll say that in this in the course of this, this series of development, there was a very long period in which he was very similar to the person in the book. But I think that the um, opinion was held in, by many, including myself, that there's, even in the book, there's something about him that feels like a little not believable. You know, there's something about his reaction to what's happening that doesn't quite feel um, like I'm someone who's married and that's just not how I react if this is happening to my partner. I'd have a few more questions before I was like all in on this idea that this cataclysmic supernatural like phenomenon was was visiting my partner um and i thought too that you know you know octavia butler was sort of openly by the end of her life asexual like she had decided to kind of choose her writing over any sort of romantic or sexual desires and um i think that in some ways it's often a blind spot of hers in these early books that she feels compelled to represent marriages because that's what she put in books, but she doesn't quite actually have the kind of like, you know, I don't feel her in her writing a real tactile sense of the emotional life of a marriage or emotional life of a relationship. And I wondered if that wasn't, you know, going back to this idea that she felt she hadn't cracked the book, I often wonder if that was part of it. Um, and I also felt there was this interesting thing about the book being in first person. There's a couple of interesting moments in the book where she has this experience and then she says, you know, I did, I couldn't tell my husband about this experience. So I'm like, wow, so you're in a marriage where you hide, <laughs> you know, you hide things. And I was like, there's something messier here that's worth kind of leaning into and not necessarily the kind of Prince Charming image that I think people always want to attach to Kevin. So I felt like that was a real opportunity. I wanted to... Um, make someone who felt like they were reacting to this phenomenon the way that I would react to it if it was my partner. Um, and also to think really deeply about, I mean, everything goes back to this choice of moving it to 2016, right? I just felt like a young woman of color was not going to take so kindly to like some of the more paternalistic uh, aspects of Kevin in the book that get kind of like swept under the rug. And so I wanted to reconceive him as a creative class in this moment, let him be sort of as bumbling as that original Kevin, but maybe also sensitive and, and understand and have been aware of things like allyship and, you know, racism in America and not just sort of like a loner dude who works at a potato chip factory or whatever. Um, and, you know, I was, and I really wanted, it was one of those kind of roles where I was like, the casting is going to have to like show me who this person is. And um, we saw like about a five trillion wonderful 
white guys between the ages of 20 and 30. And I think Micah Stock, to me, very early on, was kind of giving off an interesting energy that I thought was appealing because, um, you know, you wanted someone who felt who you may be worried could fall prey to the influences of the past, you know, who might actually, uh, there might be something at stake in that relationship that it could actually not work out, you know? And I thought he had this interesting kind of innocence about him. Like, you know, you felt like he kind of could fit in the past if he tried, right? And yet he's not quite fitting into the present. And that drove a lot of the conception of, I think, Kevin in this iteration, you know? Um, But yeah. You mentioned, you touched on the casting here a little bit, but, you know, FX and Hulu are both kind of known for, you know, filling the cast with big, big name stars, obviously. Um, The cast that you went with here, yes, there are some familiar actors, but it's more heavily weighted toward unknowns. What was your strategy there? And was there any pushback to trying to get one or two parts to stud cast with bigger names? Yeah, I mean, always, there's always this not cast conversation, like, no matter what you do. It's not even just FX. It's like, anywhere you go, they're like, can you please get Kate Blanchett in this somewhere? Um, I felt like, she, you know, for me, I come from the theater, and though these are kind of unknowns to the wider American public, probably, like, some of these folks are, like, absolute stars of, like, the stage. Like, they're just, they're, anyone in New York would kind of recognize who they were. And for me, too, there was just a premium on... I needed people who I thought were very technically trained because the work they're being asked to do is so specific and insane. Like this shows like a hybrid historical drama, also kind of a thriller, also sometimes an absurdist comedy. Like you just needed people who had the range to kind of move through all of that in some way. And, you know, there was a very, very extensive kind of casting experience and a lot of open debate about, you know, what this person brings versus this person doesn't bring. But to FX's credit, they ultimately sided on, I mean, John Landgraf especially, really sided on good acting. You know, you just want good actors, full stop, you know. Stars kind of are made and broken every day, but the real opportunity here is to, like, really get some great performances on camera, and I think that was really the value for me. We've had uh, several other people on our, on on the podcast, and ranging from Katori Hall to, to to Suzanne Laurie Parks. But you know, we've talked with a lot of showrunners who have made the leap from being a playwright to a TV showrunner. How did you really prepare to make that transition? And did you talk to anyone who had done it ahead of you? Yeah, I mean, I, that's all you can do. I literally called up every single playwright showrunner I knew, and I was like, what is happening right now? You know, because um, there really isn't much, like, there's no, like, course to take. You know, there's no kind of way in. And, you know, I think coming from the theater, one of the kind of handicaps you have is you don't have the amazing tribe that one would have assembled coming up through the ranks or having lived out in Los Angeles. And so you really are relying so heavily on just like the good graces and generosity of the writer community that you can find. Um, You know, like Rollin Jones was an incredible uh, resource to me. Every time I called, he would pick up and he just gave me so much context and encouragement and and i mean i was talking to two nights ago you know and um eli clark eliza clark who was a showrunner for wide last man she was like an amazing man in havana um and it was also helpful to just like have people who had some sort of familiarity with the work you do in that field who could sort of help translate like where you might have blind spots or where you might have particular strengths you weren't aware of and that was super duper huge, but I wish it had been more of a like, you know, I wish it had been more of a, like a set of instructions for me. I really feel like, you know, being a first time showrunner, especially during COVID, you know, especially 
you know, during whatever this moment is of like the streamers emerging and like all the rules feel new. I like don't even know if I've even had a normal experience. You know, it's all been sort of a thrown into the pool and told to swim vibe, which I mostly like in my life. But it's been some kind. It's been kind of hilarious at times. I would say too. Yeah. Uh, also, Roland Jones and Eliza Clark, both also former guests of TV's Top Five. Oh, I'm sure. We, I'm we do sure. like our yeah. playwrights. <laughs> yeah, good. I love that. So obviously with a play, you've got long periods of workshopping and previews where you can constantly be making adjustments and tweaking. And even when the show is on, you can still, if something is is clearly not working, you can sit down and find a way to make it work. What have these past few weeks been like for you reaching final cuts on these episodes and having to let this go and knowing that there's no pulling it back for you now? It's been illuminating. I mean, you sort of, you, know, you sort of, I did have a pilot process. So I was, I, I learned sort of the hard way or the easy way or whatever that, uh, that, you know, what's then is, what's there is there. You know, they say like a third draft happens on the edit room. Um, but, you know, it, I have a real deep respect for production now because it really is like so high stakes. You know, you get kind of one day to get five pages as right as you possibly can get. And like anything can happen. Like there's, it's really, it's really wild. And I actually understand how showrunning becomes addicting for some people because it just feels like when it comes together, it's like a miracle. But I do think it's true that there's no such thing as like perfection in television, you know, and you have to be the kind of person who really loves to pivot. You know, that's what you, that's what you learn. And I happen to kind of like that kind of thing. And that's, you know, cause that's what you're doing in, you know, your preview process for a play. I'm using like air quotes here. You know, you're sort of every day kind of pivoting a little bit just to make it a bit better. Um, but here you just don't have, you know, you don't have a live body to like beg to do something different the next night. You're literally trying to say like, well, I guess she looks to the left in a way that looks kind of sad in this take. So can we make her sad in this scene? Like, you know, you're just like, you're really just trying to like do some wizardry, you know? Um, but, but, the, but what's nice about, I'd say television is you just have so many more collaborators. I mean, I had like amazing editors who became like my greatest heroes and confidants because, um, it is such a gigantic like ship to, to build. Um, it's not, it sort of doesn't really come down to you as much as people want to believe that it's really about these networks you kind of build around yourself. And we do like to wrap these interviews with the same question. What have you been watching and enjoying lately outside of cuts of Kindred, of course? <laughs> um, I have been watching season two of White Lotus, um, which I have been enjoying. I mean, I just enjoy uh, Mike White as like this kind of auteur in the form. And um, it feels very comforting to kind of return to his world in that way. Um, I'm watching, <laughs> is Heavy Scripted? How does this game work? Um, nope. Whatever you're watching I, you know, and enjoying. During COVID, yeah, during COVID, my husband and I watched 33 seasons of Amazing Race in like the span of <laughs> three months. <laughs> and, uh, which, by the way, I highly recommend if you just want like a sociological experience of like America pre-11 in technology to now. Um, and so we're watching the newest season just because like we're just addicted now, which is so stupid. That show is so good in that way. Um and God, this is embarrassing. You know, I have a hard time watching scripted stuff when I'm working on it. So I'm, the other thing I'm watching We've is heard that, yeah. Lego Masters. Oh my gosh. So I'm watching Lego Masters, oh. which is like a competitive Lego show. Uh, I watched that for the first time the other day with friends and it, it's incredible. 
It's great. And Will Arnett is kind of killing it in a way that I'm a little bit afraid to admit. But uh, it's, I don't know, it's really good, kind of mindless and very sweet. It's a very sweet show. It's like almost like Great Rich Baking Show. Like people who did Legos aren't quite as cutting as you maybe think they, they should be. Absolutely. I was surprised by the same thing. I have to, I have to ask 33 episodes 33 seasons rather of Amazing Race in such a short period is that the kind of thing that makes you and your husband desperately want to apply for the show or has it convinced you that you want no part of that at all Oh it's an open debate you I mean you, I realize that every family has every fan of the show is, is obviously in their mind fantasizing about when and how and if they would ever try to apply to Amazing Race but you know I'm I'm the kind of that's like no 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 way and that, you know Mike White was on the show so that, so there was this kind of hilarious season where I was like really heavily identifying with this like writer who was there with their dad and trying to I guess just see the world uh, but yeah no it's it's it's, part, it's just part of the game I, I, I dare you to find someone who's like I just watch it for fun you know I just like to see see the sights like no. You're, everyone's fantasizing about racing a bunch of random strangers around the world. It's just supreme joy. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. We appreciate it, Brandon. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. I'm so honored to be here and keep loving playwrights. That's awesome. All episodes of Kindred will launch Tuesday, December 13th on the FX tab on Hulu. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Not a whole lot to choose from this week, Dan. You've got season two of Little America on Apple, and you just heard our interview about Kindred, which launches on FX on Hulu. And then elsewhere, you've got Netflix has its Harry and Meghan docuseries. Dan, what do you got? Indeed. Uh, yeah, a little, little less this week, uh, which, is, which is good because it's been fun to be catching up a little bit on, on the television stuff uh, ahead of my top ten, which... I believe we should be able to discuss next week at this time. Currently, yeah. it currently it doesn't exist. So, uh, <laughs> so, so what? I've been catching up on sort of after you and Alan really kind of raved about that one. I'm almost done with season one, and it's so good. It is a it is a very very good show, and definitely worth repeating again. That HBO Max sort of totally worth watching. Um, agreed, and I look forward to your thoughts on future episodes there. Uh, so yeah, um, going through what we have, uh, Harry and Meghan premiered on, on Thursday with no screeners from Netflix, uh, which I think is more a factor of, uh, Netflix and everyone involves terror about the British press, uh, and the things that the British press will inevitably latch onto as they tend to with anything royal related than actual quality. Um, you know, just. <laughs> anything that can eliminate days of Piers Morgan rambling about shit on television is is good for business for everyone. So if they were able to do that by not sending out screeners, I feel bad because our colleague Angie is watching the first half of it. It's uh, three episodes now and then three episodes in another couple weeks. Uh, I watched one episode so far. I'll probably watch more depending on if it feels like people are talking about it. I, I feel at this point... <laughs> Like, I kind of know the story, and it, there are, like, cute things. Basically, the first episode is all the, here's the kind of cute nature of our relationship. And uh, and there's absolutely kind of sweet stuff to it. And and there's no question that, at least on the surface, Harry and Meghan are, a, are an adorable couple who whose relationship is absolutely, totally unique. And I can't question that. And, and so there are a lot of these little bits and pieces where there's a little bit more in this documentary 
than what we've seen before. And yet I feel like I know a lot of it. Uh, so I would even go so far as to say most of it. And so it's kind of another commercial for the Harry and Meghan relationship. And, it, you know, fine. It's I, I'm, it's not revelatory, but those two charming kids are charming. Uh, but eventually we're going to get to the stuff from the Oprah interview and it's it's going to be harrowing. But I don't know that it's going to be harrowing in, in newer, different ways. So I guess I might need to watch to see if there's anything that comes across as revelatory, or if it's just these two people who are very determined to get their story out there because the British press will run with its own stories. But have they done that already? I don't know. Anyway, I, I remain solidly Team Megan and Team Harry, and that's fine. <laughs> um, anyway, you just heard our interview with uh, Brandon Jacobs Jenkins, and uh Kindred is interesting because I, I think like my bottom line review of Kindred and by the time you read this, my actual review will presumably be very much open, uh, available, is that a lot of changes were made for the purposes of making this into an ongoing series rather than a six or eight episode limited series. And I think my own in my own feelings is probably that it would be this was better suited to being a, a one season show. It should have been a limited series. I think, I think that is, is my inclination. Uh, but also you heard in our interview with Brandon, a lot of his explanations for a lot of things that they did to basically expand it and to expand the story for the purposes of making it an ongoing series. And I think that most of the things that they decided to do are, are probably the things you needed to do to make it a long running series. I, I think that I think that the instincts are mostly correct. I just think that a lot of the things that are done in the first season to elongate the story are going to pay dividends in season two and three and four. But for the purposes of a first season, they take away and diffuse from the main narrative. I don't think that the slave side of the story, which is basically the heart of the story, it's it's the whole thing in the book, at least. I don't think it's as well executed because I think there are so many other things he's trying to do for the purposes of sustainability. And so I think there are a lot of very good things here. I think Mallory Johnson, who is the lead, is absolutely a discovery. I think she is great. I think she is terrific. And I kind of wish that there was more focus on her as opposed to focus on other people and other things because you couldn't have an entire ongoing series or someone felt you couldn't. Um, that was mostly based on only one character's perspective. So they wanted to give more perspectives. It has the result of diffusing the story. I think you can see what's good and interesting about the story. Even still, I, I just, it's, it's tough in, in my mind, probably this really just should have been a limited series, but I, I think there are, you know, I can see how the changes they made the week in the first season could ultimately strengthen season three or four. We'll see. And finally, Little America is just kind of a show that everyone forgot had a first season and that never really caught on all that much in the first season. It was one of those early, much discussed, much vaunted shows that were part of kind of the initial rounds of programming at Apple TV. And the second season is kind of slipping under the radar. And I don't know that anyone's talking about it. And it's it's too bad because the show is what it was it's a series of anthological immigrant based stories 
sometimes focusing on adversity, but sometimes really just focusing on character. And it's it's a, almost a guarantee that every episode will make you laugh a little. It's a safe bet that by the end of each episode, uh, you'll you'll feel some swells of emotion. I absolutely was uh, got teary at at two or three of the the new season's episodes, and there are a lot of really good episodes in the the new season. I I enjoyed the first episode, which uh, Mr. Song, which features Felicia Rashad as a, a DJ who gives advice to a a young Korean son of a hat shop owner who was destined for a career in medicine, but uh, but he really dreams of being an artist. It's it's lots of emotions, lots of good moments, very sweet story. Um, I liked the ninth caller, which focuses on a, a Sri Lankan young woman who does kind of a hands on a hard body uh, promotional contest to win a car where you have to have your lips on a car for for 50 minutes. It, it's got funny bits. It's got sweet bits. And it's got a musical number. Totally liked it. Camel on a Stick is about a... Uh, Somali restaurateur who who has to go through a lot of adversity to attempt to have a booth at the Minnesota State Fair. Again, these are all small stories that are wonderfully executed. Uh, for you, I would recommend eventually that you find time for uh, the episode Columbus Starlings LLC, which is about a, a Japanese woman who uh, played professional women's baseball in Japan came over to America because she thought there was a potential for professional women's baseball in America was disappointed when the league that she thought she wanted to play in uh, fell through just became a, a wife and a mother. But then she's inspired by Ichiro's uh, quest for the single season hit record to attempt to start a professional, a women's baseball team of her own and with adversity and comedy ensuing. It's, it's a beautiful 35 minutes of television. Uh, and and it's, it represents the kind of thing that the show does best, which is putting different stories, different perspectives on the screen. And uh, yeah, it, it would be too bad if this were a show that that didn't get to keep going because because I think it's I think it's a show that has a lot of value in our in our contemporary world and the number of stories that it could tell literally limitless. So, yeah, that would be uh, that would be Little America on on Apple TV plus second season premieres this week. Uh, Kindred premieres next week and it's 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 interesting. I think it's an imperfect piece of adaptation, but if it inspires people to go back and read Octavia Butler, I think that's obviously a thing of value. And Harry and Meghan, I don't think there's really anything that a review is going to tell you. If you if you feel like you want to spend more time in this particular world with this particular story than you absolutely are, I've watched one episode. It is not so far revelatory. We'll see if it gets more revelatory as it goes along. For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to The Hollywood Reporter's Now See This newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews for more. This feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, The Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. Those suckers do help spread the word of mouth. We're on Twitter. I'm at at the fine print, F-I-E-N. And Leslie is at at snoodit with two O's. 
And that is where you will find us on Twitter, as long as Twitter remains a place where we're hanging out. We always like to hear your feedback. Let us know what's working, what isn't working, etc. If you have questions for future mailbag segments, and we appreciated your submissions this week, you can email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's tvstop5, the numeral 5, at thr.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.